This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. All right, welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is part three of a series that we're doing on gender and Paul and gender roles and all that stuff and talking through that. So if you haven't listened to the first two, I'd recommend going back and doing that. And what we're doing in each of these episodes is looking at one passage and kind of going through that and talking about the the case that's usually made to support hierarchy and gender roles and all that kind of stuff. And we're seeing, like, is there something else there? Is, is, is Paul actually saying that? Is he saying something different? And kind of just putting a magnifying glass on these verses. Yeah, it's been super fun. So go check out the other ones. And if you have any questions at all, if it triggers any thoughts or stories from experiences you've had in church or just ones you've heard or any pushback, any thoughts, any questions, anything, please email us, contact at almostheretical.com. We got a few more this last week, and it's just really fun to read those and incorporate them into the show. And if we get enough questions and that sort of thing, we will probably do like a question and response show. So send those in and we'll uh, we'll get that planned. All right, Tim, what verse are we looking at today? Okay, this time actually we're going to look at two passages, uh, one in Ephesians, one in Colossians, because they're uh, totally parallel to each other. Paul's basically doing and saying the same thing. But before we do that, I want to back up and connect this episode to the past two episodes. So the first part of this series, we started actually not talking about gender, really. We started talking about power and hierarchy. And what we tried to do is give a really... Uh, over-truncated summary of Jesus's, Paul's, Peter's, the entire New Testament theology uh, as it relates to power and uh, the role of Christians in relinquishing power over others and how Paul saw that what that meant was that the church was to be the community where all of these social hierarchies and the ways that roles are established uh, to put People, it's basically upside down. Yeah, exactly. It takes the social hierarchy and it flips it on its head. So actually, I've wanted to draw a little picture of this where like in the world, the way essentially the world works is a is a pyramid, right? Where what everyone is trying to do is climb the front side of that ladder to get to the top. And what inevitably happens is once you've reached the top, there's some sort of moment of fall where you can't sustain your kingdom, basically, and you collapse and fall down the other side. And what Jesus is doing is puts forward this inverted thing where what you're actually supposed to do is descend to the bottom, live your life uh, in a race to the, the bottom of the social hierarchy, and those people who do that will be lifted up and exalted. So what happens is that those who are willing to become low status members of society now will be given high status in, in the kingdom comes. So that's the idea. So, But the reason we wanted to share that and start the series with this is I basically uh, keep seeing over and over and over again that the way people think about power functions as a kind of interpretive lens for how we think about gender uh, and then vice versa. So I think by the time we get to the end of the series, what we're actually going to see is this is both a series showing how the church has missed it really badly both when it comes to gender and when it comes to power and authority in general in the church. And women, tragically, have been the people group that have suffered 
from our error as it relates to power, our theological uh, ignorance, and our lack of discipleship when it comes to power and authority. So I guess the way to say it is that the bigger picture issue is an, is an issue with misunderstanding Christ's way of power. And the way that that's got channeled in, in some of the worst ways and continues to happen is as that relates to, to gender and gender roles and the assumption that power is good as it relates to gender. Okay, so it's basically trying to apply then this kind of upside down, work your way to the bottom ethic that Paul, Jesus, Peter, the whole New Testament has, but apply that to gender, gender roles, all that kind of stuff. Right. So then last episode, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11 and the whole uh, conversation around veiling and women's bodies and head coverings, all that. And we basically tried to walk through a summary of some of the the major interpretive uh, decisions and make a case that what Paul's clearly explicitly doing is granting women authority uh, over whether or not they cover their head in the church community, which effectively meant he was taking that authority from the men in that church community and granting it to the women in contradiction to the traditional complementarian view. So what I want to do actually is quote a scholar whose name is Tom Schreiner, who's one of basically the captains of the complementarian camp. He's a part of the whole biblical council for manhood and womanhood, uh, part of Desiring God, basically this like a coalition of uh, teachers and scholars that think the idea that that there is a God-ordained gender difference that is part of the main teaching of the Bible and that it is a gospel issue to preserve the role in society and in the church of men being the authoritative head of, of women. So I just want to quote so we kind of see what we're looking at here and i've actually had to take a class with tom schreiner so i got this firsthand uh but in juxtaposition where we said what paul was doing was essentially giving a rebuke to the men in the community to empower the women schreiner thinks paul quote enforces a cultural practice on the women in the community end quote, regarding veiling because, quote, the differences between the sexes must not be erased but preserved. And this, quote, reflects on the creation order that reflects God's will that men and women be distinct. This is all coming from his, like, big Pauline theology, by the way, Paul, apostle of God's glory in Christ. And, and what you'll see in complementarian crowds is there's this hyper focus on gender distinction, like the difference between men and women, and, and this is interpreted as like one of the key ideas of the Bible that the biblical authors were just so obsessed with getting the point across. It's one of the, you know, the key pieces of what it means to be a biblical Christian. I realize like we're, we're three episodes into this series and I guess we never like officially defined complementarian and egalitarian, but we're kind of doing that now. And um, we've had some listeners ask us to to do that and so this is sort of describing and tom schreiner is sort of a large proponent of the complementarian viewpoint and obviously the opposite of that is the egalitarian viewpoint and we'll define that but basically that means everyone's equal and complementarian means men are on top essentially all right keep going right so if you remember uh, the last verse in that passage first corinthians eleven sixteen, paul kind of closes his thought which again i think what's the the obviously the best interpretation is that Paul is empowering the women in that community in a really subversive revolutionary way. He ends that thought with, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So 
It isn't surprising to me that Schreiner reads this last verse as a warning against contentiousness to the women rather than the men. And he says, quote, women must prophesy. Women must prophesy in a suitable manner so that the headship and priority of men is preserved. Wow. In other words, Paul wants women to prophesy with a head covering or a proper hairstyle because such adornment communicates that women are submissive to male headship. End quote. The word priority, that's what I said wow about, that he uses the word priority. Totally. It's, yes, that the priority of men is preserved. Rachel Held Evans always uh, brings up that line. I think she did when she was on our show too, but that Piper, he has that quote that like Christianity has a masculine feel to it. Yep. And that's sort of what that sounded like as well, which I I, uh, I see someone maybe interpreting things the where they land and complimentary or whatever, but like then taking it this extra level where it's like God prioritizes or like has a, it has a masculine feel. That's what, that's the one I don't understand at all. Anyways, sorry, keep going. No, it's fine. Part of why I'm quoting this here is, is because we often get accused of caricaturing the other side, right? People we don't agree with. This guy is one of the preeminent scholars who's like the top of the theological food chain and complementarian world. He's not one of their schmucks. He's a biblical professor, a theologian who's published all sorts of stuff. And he's one of the main guys that complementarians go to for their best arguments. Okay. So this is like cream of the crop in complementarian world. And I just want to point out what he's saying is that this is a rebuke of the women in the community. And that what Paul is doing is using his authority, which is a good thing in Shriner's mind to rebuke the women. And I think I just want to notice here before we move on to some new passages that this is obviously just assuming a perspective, right? That is essentially the the dominant male perspective that of course Paul would be reinforcing male authority. Of course, Paul would be using and enjoying his own male authority. Of course, Paul would be undercutting, you know, sort of rebellious women. Uh, he would he would never be questioning the men in right. the society, right? Uh, at the hands of the women. It, it's just an assumption that has been allowed to be perpetuated for a long, 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 long time in the church and in scholarship world because the only people who have essentially been invited into that world are men who have this dominant male uh, perspective. So biblical scholarship, translation, and just church leadership has basically been dominated by men who have a kind of self-conserving bias that I think feeds into perspective and a sort of leaning that will inevitably choose an interpretation that preserves the power and privilege of that male dominance, male privilege. And I just want to say, like, I, I can partly say that that is true because I know that I've felt that myself. Right. Like I know what it's like to feel uh, like I've been been given power and like the keys to the kingdom in a community or in in certain circles or whatever. And it feels really good. And if there were a theological argument that I could hang my hat on to, to know that everywhere I go, I'm going to get to remain the top dog in charge, like the the most powerful person in the room, including the passages we're going to look at today are these household codes, right? right? If I could choose a theology that was going to make it so that Monique, my wife, would essentially have to bend to my own desires on the basis of some sort of theology of gender roles, right? There is a very real part of me 
that wants that to exist. Like I want to hold on to that. It's honestly, I would say that's like when Paul uses the language of the flesh uh, and these kind of like natural uh, desires. Right. And it's the the Jesus side of me, the, the Christian spirit uh, in me that I would say allows somebody to push back on that. So ironically, when Paul writes this last line, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. I honestly think that people like Tom Schreiner and those in the complementarian camp, especially those uh, men espousing these ideas at the top of the denominations and seminaries and whatnot, have put themselves, ironically, into the exact position of the men that Paul is addressing with that line, right? Paul did not think that the women who wanted to veil their heads but were being told by the the men in their their communities was most likely uh, the situation here. Paul didn't think the women were going to push back on him <laughs> about veiling their heads, at least not the lower class women. Maybe if there are a rich woman or two that didn't want uh, the prostitutes or slaves. Be associated with that, yeah. Right. But the best interpretation, <laughs> clearly, is that those in power in that community were going to be those that were resistant and pushed back on Paul's idea. And I just think the the irony is that those like Shriner who want to say, look, Paul's rebuking women here are actually the kind of people who have the kind of authority and are using the kind of authority to keep women out of full equality in the church community mm. that Paul is rebuking in this very same line. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. Yeah. All right. So let's do it. So what passages are we looking at today? Okay. Are you going to read these? Yeah. Yeah. Give them to me. Okay. So uh, the first one's a bit long. Uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. Okay. Ephesians 5. Um, I'll read this one first and then give me the second one. Okay. I'll read, let's see. Let's see. Ephesians 5, 22. Yep. All right. Uh, I don't remember the end. So just stop me when I need to end. Okay. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ooh, the the wedding verse. (laughs) To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated 
their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. That's the end, right? Yep. Okay, I'll read the second one. It's Colossians three eighteen through 4, 1. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so let's do the same thing we did last time. Kind of give me your first first gut response and maybe any historical baggage related to these passages. Ooh, uh, yeah. I mean, this feels like sort of everything. I mean, like I said, this is the this is the wedding verse. This is the verse that I mean, every wedding I go to that is a kind of a complementarian um, pastor doing the ceremony and a complementarian marriage that's about to happen. And my wedding, your wedding. This is the this is the verse that is read. And the idea here is that. It's laying the laying the like foundation from the beginning that there's a hierarchy here and it's God authority over man, authority over woman. That honestly, when I hear that, I just picture all the weddings I've ever been to where that's kind of laid from the beginning. But then also it's really interesting recently in the last few years, just the, the verses about slaves that are included in the Ephesians one. That just to me feels like a lot of this that he's talking about is cultural again, like we talked about last week. And so that's some of the way that I think about this now. And um, it diminishes, I think, some of the impact that it has for me now, because I know that he's also talking about the way that slavery should be done the right way as well, you know? So I don't know. So those are just some of the things I know, like a lot of terrible stuff has come from these verses. I haven't necessarily seen like terrible things in, in my life. But I do want to say that early on in marriage, like for the first couple of years, we really tried hard to live in this like hierarchical marriage and it really just did not work for us. Yeah, I don't know. So those are just some of my initial thoughts, I guess. Yeah, totally. Well, the reason I, I had us read the extended passages that went beyond just the wife-husband sections was because it's really important that in both of these passages, both Ephesians and Colossians, that... Yeah, they never talk about slaves at weddings, huh? They never go there. They never go that far. <laughs> yeah, or we never consider the fact that 
the wife-husband relationship is set in parallel to the slave-master relationship. Exactly, yeah. So how, today at least, how do you justify, rightly justify, getting rid of slavery as an atrocious evil use of power over other people and then claim that this is God's ordained plan and that actually this is Paul instructing, right, husbands to have authority over their wives. So let me back up for a sec. One of my favorite points in Cynthia Long Westfall's book, kind of her broader exegetical approach, is pointing out uh, what I think I had sort of felt intrinsically but hadn't been able to articulate at this level, is that Paul, throughout all of his theology, intentionally puts men and women, slaves, masters, and then the Jew and Gentile in these analogous pairs. And the the key verse is in Galatians 3.28, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And many on the complementarian side are so, again, focused on thinking that the Christian idea is that men and women are just supposed to remember they're different, right? The key is difference, that they interpret this as like, oh, no, no, but remember, there still is difference between men and women. The point of this passage has nothing to do with difference. The point of this passage is about power mm. and status. And what Paul is saying is, is there is no longer any difference in status between Jew and Gentile, insiders and outsiders, right? Slaves or their masters and men and women, for you are all one in Christ. And the very next verse proves this because he says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs, that means co-rulers, right? Rulers of the kingdom. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The whole point of this idea, which then plays out everywhere in Paul's theology, is that everyone gets equal rule in Christ's kingdom. That the whole nature of the gospel is that the least of these, right? Uh, those who are least in the, in the world have been blessed in the kingdom and uh, are given great power. So the greatest will be the least, all that we've already talked about. So what Paul is doing is he's not just picking out, oh, we got to talk about gender because gender roles are important. He's, he's picking out the primary relationships where a significant power differential exists. And he's going through and he's applying his Christian ethic of relinquishing power to the various people in those relationships of power differential. So he's he's just looking at these and saying, like, we have to do this a different way, essentially, um, which is why he doesn't look at slavery and say no more slavery anymore, because that's not the point. That's not what he's trying to do here. That wouldn't even be, like, possible or, like, attainable necessarily in his head, because that's so ingrained in their, in their world. He's saying, here's how we're going to do this with the Christian ethic, if we're going to have this, or something like that. Right, yeah. He's not trying to take down the Roman Empire, although... This is a much longer conversation. Paul didn't live in a democracy. No one in their day could imagine taking down the Roman Empire, right? So we can't just take this governmental ethic, right, or politic and apply it to our day as as Westerners. Uh, but what he's doing, he's saying, in Christ, these things have all been nullified. And he's saying, the reason we're going to talk about these relationships, the slave-master relationship, the male-female relationship, is because these are the very relationships that out there in the culture that we are all living in, there is the clearest and largest differential in power granted to the different people in this relationship. The, the additional one is the parent-child relationship. Parents have a whole lot of authority. Children do not. So let me quote Cynthia Long Westfall here. Uh, again, this is an idea that is intrinsic to kind of how I've been thinking about power for a while now. But when I 
when I saw somebody writing this <laughs> in a good, well-published book, I literally was like pumping my fist in the air. Uh, in reference to these two passages, he says, uh, neither partner is entitled or has priority because every patron is reduced to functioning like a client. So we'll get into this language of patron-client relationship, but what she's saying is, this is a patronage society and every person in society and every relationship in society is construed as one, one party is the patron or benefactor, the one in power. And the other party is the recipient who becomes the client who has to reciprocate their obligation back to the patron. So men, free men, uh, heads of households are the patrons, right? Um, so actually a good picture is kind of like Abraham or Job in the old Testament where uh, they basically have this household that includes their wife, their children, their children's wives, and then a whole bunch of servants, right? So uh, there's kind of this giant household structure. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, she says, every patron in, in the church is reduced to functioning like a client. So every person with power is reduced to functioning like the servant in the relationship. This is the dynamic within the entire section that deals with the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians. In the pairs of relationships addressed, the wives, children, and slaves are are to maintain behavior that is acceptable within the culture, while the directions to the husbands, parents, and masters are revolutionary. Paul places the responsibility and obligation for sociological transformation in the Christian community upon those who have power, while he reverses the culture's negative evaluation of those without power, which is consistent with Jesus' teaching. Mm. So what she's saying, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, is that what Paul's doing here is he lists... In both passages, he lists three pairs of types of people in society, okay? So wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And his, his basic ethic that he's applying here is Christian self-sacrificial love for the others to become servant to all. Wives, children, and slaves, they're already servants, yeah. right? <laughs> like they are already low on the social hierarchy. So Paul isn't telling them to buck off the Greco-Roman cultural expectations and seize power for themselves. He's actually saying you're already kind of in the position that you would be trying to get to if you were in power in the first place as a Christian, right? Like if you're already at the bottom of the social hierarchy, uh, you're actually right where Christians want to be. But then what he does is he says, like, your service there is to the Lord. Like, this is a form of worship. We talked about this last time. And he dignifies it. So, like, to wives, he says, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this is interpreted as saying, like, you know, because good biblical Christians, like, do biblical marriage where women are at the bottom and men are at the top. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, because you're a Christian— who, who professes worship and adoration for the Lord of the cosmos who descended to the bottom of the social hierarchy, then you can actually consider your submission to your husband, which society already demanded that you do because society tells you you're inferior as a woman. Paul's saying you're not inferior, you're equal, have equal status, but this is your this can be your worship. Right. Like you can actually submit as to the Lord. And he does the same thing even in a longer, more extended version with the slaves. When he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So what he's saying is practically what it means for people in the positions of low power is to remain there, but to, to reorient their whole way of life 
to submit not based on social hierarchy, but to submit based on self-sacrificial love for other people, right? But then, and this is where we completely miss it, what Westfall is saying, and, and what I think is so important, is that what Paul articulates, and I would say this is everywhere in the New Testament, to the people in positions of power is that they're not to remain in their position of social status and hierarchy, that they're actually supposed to abandon that position, give up that authority, and descend to the place of equal to whoever they're in a position of power of. So like in Philemon, he writes to Philemon, the slave master, and says, if you don't treat Onesimus, your slave, like a brother— then you're actually proving that you're ineffective in your your Christian faith. But we've always taken those things to say like, okay, so he's saying leave slavery there and, and leave leave the hierarchy in marriage there, leave the hierarchy in parenting, whatever, all, all, leave it all there, but just do it a better way. Like do it with love and with, you know, compassion where you're serving the other person, that kind of thing. And I think what's been really revolutionary to me in this chat we just had is that that's because you said the word democracy. That's because he didn't live in a in a a time in a um, under the Roman Empire when they could imagine like changing the system or something like that, like we can now. So my question to you is like, okay, take Paul out of that and put Paul now. Does he just like, no, we got to go along with the way things are, but try to you know love inside of that, or does he say like we have a chance to change the system here? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Okay. So let's think about this uh, in a couple different ways. The first is that the reason we get to this place where, for instance, uh, the traditional view has been, yeah, men are supposed to love their wives in a kind of servant love, and pastors are servant leaders, but pa- but that always means authority, right? Yep. So... Uh, so pastors, you're supposed to, you're supposed to be a servant. We know that, but it also means you're the, you're the one in charge of the society or charge of the church community. Yep. And we'll talk about the whole elders, deacons, like office stuff in a future episode, but the same thing goes of like, yeah, elders, they're supposed to be those that like serve and over the community. But what it really means is they're the ones who have most power to make decisions. Right. And then there's this pushback on the so-called progressive agenda or egalitarian camp or whatever, that's like they, they're they just so confused that they think that differential in authority means differential in equality. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it means. That's what it means to Paul. To Paul, a difference in status and power is what it means for something to be unequal. Mm. <laughs> like that is that is the one of the basic fundamental philosophical ideas of Christianity is that to say that one person is going to have power over another is to say that you are not treating one another as siblings, co-heirs or co-servants, right? You're perpetuating the very kind of hierarchical role structure that Jesus explicitly uh, forbid, forbade, that Jesus explicitly forbode, just kidding, I don't know, (laughs) uh, prohibited. And, and it's basically this, like, I would honestly say like kind of this sleazy way to almost like dismiss <laughs> the, the cries of victims, uh, of this kind of subtle or less than subtle sexism and patriarchy, uh, by saying like, Hey, you no, know, like you're equal. You just can't do this, right? Like a oh, women can do ministry. You just can't be pastors or can't teach from the stage or can't speak if your husband's not in the room. Right. Right. And we're serving and we're being servants but we're going to be at the top and you're going to be below and we're going right. to, you know, essentially tell the church what to do and the, the family what to do and stuff, but we're serving. 
again, yeah. And so again, we'll get into this uh, some more in a future episode. But like the head pastor, the guy who <laughs> put me out of a job and all the hullabaloo is about at my past church, he changed his position to pastor of teaching and vision. What did that mean? It meant pastor of making decisions, which means <laughs> it's pastor means servant, not the one with the power to make decisions. So his title was literally the one without decisions of making all of the decisions. <laughs> like, so we've just skewed all of the roles, all of the whole ideology, because yeah. again, going back to why I was quoting from Schreiner, the default error in Western Christianity, and this is one where I can't just pick on evangelicalism because this is the Catholic church for their entire history uh, from about the fourth century on. The default error is an assumption of power, that power is good and authority is good. That is the default theology of power. So when we get to these passages, and Schreiner says this explicitly, that if wives are told to submit to their husbands, then what Paul is also implying is husbands are supposed to maintain authority over their wives. Hmm. Th- that right there is, I would say, the, the key hermeneutical interpretive reason why we're at where we're at. That is the opposite of what Paul is saying. And that's Cynthia Westfall's point that what Paul is actually saying is the onus of responsibility to to act like a Christian in a far more costly way is on those who have power. They're supposed to give it away over their wives or their their children or their slaves. But the this move, this this idea that oh, that means Paul's also saying that husbands should have authority. It's the same move that also, by the way, was used to say, therefore, slavery is okay and good, right? And it's okay to have mastery over another human being. That's something being read into the text, again, that I'm calling a an assumed theology of power, that is actually the opposite of what Paul is thinking and doing. So again, this gender conversation, I think when we get out the other side, is going to show that that whole assumption about power is wrong, and therefore, all of the related assumptions about men being in power over women is wrong. Yeah. And the only way to, to me to thoroughly change the way we think about gender and women is to thoroughly think Christianly about power and authority and vice versa. And so one of the ways I would say you can, you can see that happening in this text is look at the, the sections with parents and children. So in, in both of them, in Ephesians and in Colossians, I think it's really interesting when he says to the children, he says, children, obey your parents. And in Ephesians, he quotes the Decalogue and says, honor your father and mother. But then who does he address? Parents. No, fathers. Think, think about the significance of that. Why, if kids are supposed to obey their parents, right, not just your father, why does then Paul only speak to fathers about not being harsh with their kids? Because they're the ones with the authority in the family, essentially. Exactly. They're the ones who Paul is most concerned with because they are the ones who have the most power, <laughs> right? In that worldview. Not he's saying they're supposed to have the most power. He's saying they just do. They do. Exactly. In, that, in the world they're living in. Yeah. That's why he needs to address them. That's, that's the distinction. I think that's everything right there. Yeah. So if this was being read as it's, as it's been taught, that what Paul is doing is laying out an organization for for how the community is supposed to work. Of there's supposed to be this wife-husband relationship. There's supposed to be this child-father relationship. There's supposed to be this slave-master relationship. He would just lay it all out and he would agree with the, the world that they're living in and say like, yeah, I, that, this is the way it's supposed to be. He would just lay it out clearly. Right. 
His his lens, and I'm saying it needs to be our lens, is power differentials between human beings in the church. And he's he's literally circling, he's looking at a church community, and here these are these are sort of broad communities, right? And he's circling the predominant places in this culture where a significant power differential will exist. And then he speaks to the person without power and he encourages them and empowers them not to buck off the shackles again and seize their own power. They're to to follow Christ, to give up power, even though they already don't have much. But then he speaks to the the other side of that equation, to the one with power. And we don't have time to get into all the details, but he uses oftentimes, for instance, feminine language to speak to the men, <laughs> to gives, gives them basically like feminine household chores to do in response to their wives, for instance, like washing their wives, right? So he assigns uh, feminine titles to the men. He assigns lowly servant terms and functions to those in positions of high power. Hmm. He uses uh, sibling language to say that you're all on the same level playing field. Uh, he uses this other uh, piece that we brush over all the time as pointing to us having one Lord in Christ or one master who is God. He constantly does this thing where he points up and says, because there is one Lord, there is now a flat egalitarian universalized playing field for everyone else, hmm. right? Like you can't be the Lord of your wife if there is one Lord. Like that's uh, that's a key piece of what he does uh, basically <laughs> throughout all of this. Right, right. So again, this is one of those things where like, we could we could get into the details of these passages, but if what we think Paul is doing <laughs> or where we think he's coming from is this default assumption that authority is good, power is good, there needs to be these hierarchical hierarchical structures, otherwise, you know, socialism is going to destroy the world. And therefore he wants to assert a God-given biblical structure of male-female gender roles in marriage, then we also A... <laughs> have to say that okay then Paul is saying that there should be a there is a god-given god-ordained slave master relationship right <laughs> that's set side by side with wives husbands right and sadly I, I almost don't want to say that because actually people have done that throughout history yeah but most complementarians today won't do that right they're anti-slavery uh, but they're pro spousal submission from wives to husbands. It's just incoherent and inconsistent. But if you start to actually see what Paul's really thinking about power and how what he's doing in the church, as as Cynthia Long Westfall says, is revolutionary, but it's specifically revolutionary to the, the person in a position of power. And for them to be a Christian means far more social change, like far more pragmatic abandonment of what the society told them to be than those in low positions of power, then you start to see why it seems on the surface like Paul's telling women to submit and husbands to be in charge. And then you start to look more closely and you said, Paul never tells anyone to practice authority over anyone, ever. Right, right. No, I think that's huge. Like that's the whole piece is who's he actually talking to? He's talking to the one in authority where we've always read it as like and always understood it. And I see from complementarian camp like that he's talking to the ones you said it like last week, I think like the assumption is women don't want to cover their heads, but he's like cracking the whip and saying like, no, you have to. Um, but it's he's always talking to the one with the actual authority. And we're not just like this isn't just like a um, a nice theological debate that we want to sit around with our beers and, you know, talk about is, you know, is, is it complementarian or is it egalitarian? Like we think this is so important because of the damage we've seen it do in the real world. And even recently with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement and uh, sexual abuse, sexual assault, all this stuff that's going on in the cover-up, 
oftentimes comes right back to a lot of these issues and the the gender roles and the hierarchy that we have in the church and then in the family. So that's why we're calling this out. And that's why we're pretty strongly calling it out because we think this is really, really important. And just like to raise our hands and say like, we're not holier than anyone out there. We taught this, we practiced this, and we have we have changed and we have grown from that. And that's what we're trying to show through this show as well, is like to say, like, we're sorry for the things we taught and we're sorry for the things we believed and um, helped other people believe. But um, we want to move from there and we want to give the Bible back to people who thought they had to move on past the Bible because it didn't feel like Paul and, and the Bible were actually in agreement with them. We want to show you that, no, there actually is a way to look at this that scholarship now, and that's what we love about Cynthia Long Westfall's work, scholarship now, maybe some of the best scholarship out there is showing like maybe Paul was talking about this all along. And so that's what we're doing on the show. That's what we're doing with this series. And we have more to go. So come back next time to hear more. And if you haven't, go back and listen to the first couple episodes in this series. And yeah, we got so much more to do. So if you have any questions or thoughts or comments or anything like that, we'd love to hear from you. Contact at almostheretical.com. You can go back and listen to all the episodes at almostheretical.com. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts and that kind of thing so that you never miss an episode. And we will see you next time. I'm going to say one more thing. And you you can decide whether it fits in this episode or a future one. But uh, there's something I've been like laying in bed thinking about over and over again since I've been getting into this uh, deep dive study. And it's so in that line, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there man or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Just thinking on church history, the whole New Testament is basically a story of the church's struggle to come to terms with there being <laughs> no power differential between Jews and Gentiles. Right. You see Peter being resistant to that idea. And there had to be all these like divine breakthroughs to convince Jews that Gentiles could be included fully and and put in positions of leadership in the church. It's potentially what Romans is all about. Yeah. And then it took till basically 100 years ago for the church to uh, abandon slavery (laughs) and actually uh, decide theologically uh, as a whole, that there was no place for mastery of o- other people in society. So slaves were finally liberated. And here we are, 2018, uh, women still have not experienced the liberation that Paul not only was teaching, but Paul was actually enacting in communities in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago. Like, we get called progressive, <laughs> right? Like, we're dubbed liberal, progressive, whatever, and, and Paul, like, and I'm not saying there's no issues with Paul or we don't have to wrestle with him. But the fact is, he, he actually made communities or helped foster communities within the Greco-Roman world where, where women were considered property of men that were more empowering and liberating to women than the church has been for the past 1600 years and continues to be today. Mm-hmm. So there's this, like, these three relationships in analogy, Jew, Gentile, it took a hundred years for Gentiles to be fully included, but they were slaves and masters. It took 1900 years for slaves to be fully liberated, but now they are. And men and women, we are still here arguing over whether or not women should be fully liberated in the church. And I just say, it's time to finally figure this thing out. And it's going to happen. Be on the right side of history. That's what I say. All right. We will. Now we'll see you next time. Okay. Peace. Peace.